I'm Billy. I'm Drew. And this is Pilot Club. This is the 99th episode of Pilot 99, Club. 99. Wow. And the Important. first, the first, and I've got a, I've got a special archive corner to suggest for the centenary celebration. Yeah, exciting. 99. 99. 2024. Happy New Year, everyone. And um, yeah, you've been in Cambodia for a couple of weeks. You want to talk us through that trip? Uh, yeah. So what's our first, uh, what's our first episode? <laughs> so moving to the opposite of Cambodia in a way, climate-wise. Uh, the first episode. Probably good to clarify something about procedure here. When it, when it comes to anthology shows, if each season is completely self-contained, we treat it as a new series. So yeah. this week we're doing the fifth season of Fargo to kick us off. We've actually never talked about any other seasons of Fargo on the podcast, have we? Uh, we have not. No, we so have not. So this series began, I think, well before we started mm. this. But has there been a, has there been a new one since we started? There, there might have been. I think season four. It might, might have been have dropped a few years ago. It might have been when we were on hiatus during the pandemic or something. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's actually really funny. Just on that on that notice and aside, I'm um, rewatching The Wire at the moment, and I'd forgotten there's a season four subplot with Marlo where they develop a new street drug called Pandemic. Oh. So people are yelling out, "Pandemic, pandemic! Who wants pandemic?" It just it hits wow. really, it hits really differently. Wow, an eerie, an eerie, eerie, eerie type of foreshadowing. Yeah, yeah. It's funny too, actually. Just speaking of foreshadowing, um. I was watching Seinfeld today, and there's a whole remember the whole subplot where Elaine breaks up with her boyfriend because he doesn't believe in Roe v. Wade, and there's a bit at the end of the episode where he says, "Well, one day it'll be reversed, Elaine," and everyone laughs. Wow! And then yeah, yeah it's a pretty eerie Seinfeld episode <laughs> yeah. to watch now. Um, you should create a spin-off. Yeah. Eerily portentous '90s and noughties uh, uh, TV shows. TV shows. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like um, there's some Twitter feed, like rugby league feed, like photographs that precede disaster. Oh wow! So it's like, okay. It's like, anyway, back <laughs> seconds to, before disaster. Back to the um, yeah. So what what we're doing to start off with today is the fifth um season of Fargo. Yeah, it's an anthology show, so yep. it counts. Yeah, I think counts absolutely. as a pilot. Well, same thing as each new iteration of The Crown, or mm. at least every new. Two seasons of The Crown and The White Lotus and American Horror Story. They're all self-contained series. Yeah. And this one actually feels like a bit of a back-to-basics narrative for yeah. Fargo. Before we go into it, mm. what is your what is your experience with this TV series? Like? It's a really good question. Um, I remember... So, I've had a couple of different experiences with it. So, I watched the entire first and second series. Okay. Um, the I know first, you're a big fan of the film. That's the basis. Yeah, for I this, love the film. Remember when we watched the film? When remember, like, I'll tell you when to laugh. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I invited Andrew and some friends over to watch Fargo when I was like in year nine, yeah. I think, on VHS. Yeah, and I got really annoyed because they didn't laugh in the right spots. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you when to laugh. <laughs> yeah, that? so it was a you really kind of overlooked the kind of black comedy aspect to this drama didn't you well i think i was discerning <laughs> you were treating it more as straight drama but i remember i got really like i got really quite like head up because you weren't laughing like I, well I, we I, were laughing we were laughing at at the scenes i think that were meant to be laughed at maybe that's fair <laughs> that's fair um but I, I remember like i feel like when the series came out initially that that was kind of a peak moment of prestige tv right like the, the very idea of making a series out of fargo like a, a film that is so kind of hallowed in indie circles just seemed almost inconceivable. So mm. I remember, and interestingly, um, this is a time when I was trying to secure American residency. So I was traveling a lot and I actually watched it with Kyle, like started watching it the night after returning from the States. So okay. I watched it in that kind of jet lag space where everything's a little bit kind of... Dreary. Yeah, and a bit dreamlike. Yeah. So I'm actually not sure, I don't have a clear memory of watching the first season except that I liked it. I remember really enjoying the is Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons the second and Ted Danson the yeah, second season. season two. Yeah. I remember really enjoying that, 
and then I tried the third season. I don't think I watched the fourth season and wasn't that into it. I remember finding it just a bit heavy-handed, a bit writerly, mm. um, just a bit slow. And I, yeah, so I, I didn't get into the fourth season. It's actually yeah. one of those shows I've been, I was just saying today, like, we should kind of give it a go again. Like, I, I feel like I haven't got a great read on it mm. as a whole. How, how about you? What, what's your experience? I, I've, I've only seen the, the first episode of the first series okay. and okay, right. I took it almost it's almost like a straight a straight adaptation of the of the film just slowed down so I was a bit a bit averse to it am I, and am I correct in remembering that Martin Freeman plays twins in it or am I thinking of something completely he was definitely different? in it I'm not sure I can't remember him playing twins am but I, I'm, I'm going to google this am, yeah, I, am I confusing yeah. this with a series where Martin Freeman play, plays twins <laughs> yeah so I was I was I was probably less open to it as a project Given I'm a bit averse to just remaking things that were really good movies into you know uh, TV series that are four or five times the length. Sure. So I think season five is actually a good a good point to dip back into the series yep. because it it appears to completely wipe the slate clean. Yep. And uh, begin with a with a kind of somewhat adjacent kidnapping narrative. Mm. Um, totally, it seems pretty consistent with the film. That's interesting. Like I. I wonder, was that the common thread? Like, does each series revolve around an abduction? I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure. The, okay. the back to basics might even be the fact that this is centred around an abduction or a series of abductions. I think also back to basics too, and that it just seems to be kind of you know, plot-driven, set-piece-driven, and I guess cinematic in a classical way, mm. whereas I felt like, you know, especially the third season, it was a bit of an exercise in eccentricity, but also a kind of leaden, a bit leaden in its kind of messaging. Yeah. So you've got this kind of leaden eccentricity. Maybe you should just give a plot summary yeah. briefly of this pilot. Yeah, let's do it. Um, the protagonist, Dot, great name, is played by Juno Temple. And we yeah. kind of open... One of my favourites. Yeah, we, she's fantastic. Yeah. And she's fantastic in this. She really works. She's British, right? She is. She works really well in this with yeah. the, the Minnesota nice kind of style. So it kind of opens in media's race, I guess, in the middle of a PTA meeting in Minnesota. Mm. And... There's not a lot, lot of context, actually. There's, we're just in the middle of this PTA meeting at a school that just goes absolutely postal, like people's violence, you know, you know, slow motion shots of people falling to the floor, kids and adults kind of alike fighting. And the Judo Temple character, Dot, um, accidentally strikes a police officer. Mm. She, and it's captured on film. So that's, you know, it's captured on television and nightly news. And from there, I guess, two narratives unfold. Like, on the one hand, her, her image, you know, go statewide, maybe national, and she's recognised by a man from her past, um, Roy Tillman, played by John Hamm, a, a preacher. We don't learn much more about in this episode. Mm. And mm. he sends a couple of goons to kidnap her. And that leads to a pretty suspenseful scene where she fights him in her apartment. And then an extraordinary scene where she and a kind of police officer, um, uh, Lamorne Morris, played by Whitfar, are... Uh, kind of stand off against them in a, in a petrol station. Yeah. That, that's, that's, that's a really... We'll come back, but that, that's an incredible scene. That's one part of it. Um, the other part of it is her husband. She's got her husband, kid, husband Wayne, played by David Rysdahl, and his mother, um, Lorraine, played by Jennifer Jason Lee, one of my all-time favourites. And she's a, a real bigwig in Minnesota. She's, yeah. you know, she's ultra-wealthy. She's part of the gun lobby. She's a debt collector. And when it turns out that the Juno Temple character has been taken, she's kind of enlisted or, or is under attack. She's enlisted to kind of help with it. And the, mm. the pilot has a really kind of nice, I guess, full circle structure where at the end Juno Temple doesn't even manage to escape and comes home. 
and tries to convince her husband that she was just out doing something. Yes. But this wasn't an abduction at all. Crazy old me. Crazy old me. I bled all over the place, yep. but uh, you know, I must have forgotten. Exactly. <laughs> so she tries to respond to a kind of you know, provisional normality. And it reminded me a little bit of, um, especially, well, I think both Candy and Love and Death, those two series about the housewife Montgomery who murdered yes. her neighbour. But especially in Love and Death after the murder's taken place or the manslaughter's taken place the way she tries to return to a kind of domestic normality, but it's it's slightly awry. Yeah. So that's the, um, I guess, the plot summary of this mm. first episode. I thought this was interesting in a lot of ways and definitely felt distinct from the Fargo as I know it. Like, what was your... How did you feel that it compared to the Fargo brand? Uh, yeah, well, interesting to, to think that this, uh, you know, independent 90s Coen Brothers movie mm. has become a brand mm. and has been sort of IPified. Mm. Um, I feel like in each episode you almost have a Francis McDormand surrogate. Yes, yeah. yes. So I think this was at least, this is uh, one of the truest to mm. the brand mm. um, in that, well, it is set in Minnesota and North mm. Dakota, so it has that, it has that regional mm. flavour. Uh, it has, you know, this kind of slightly kooky... Um, house, you know, housewife character mm. or domestic character, who is the the protagonist in in Dot. Uh, it has a more sinister group of of uh, henchmen, mm. if you will, um, one of whom appears to have you know some sort of supernatural connection. Mm. Yeah, was there a UFO moment in here? There's shout out to our friend Dave. Was there a <laughs> there's, UFO? There's certainly, a, there's certainly a slight subtle hint of the supernatural here was there a maybe U- like a kind of folk horror element to yeah. this was there a ufo moment oh you haven't seen, you haven't seen the first episode of the first series i feel like there was a ufo motif in yeah. earlier seasons like that, yeah. that was just just around the fringes of There's the action fringe supernatural quality to it um i think you know the fact that it is centered around an abduction or a series of mm. of attempted and possibly even failed abductions mm. Um, I think tonally it's very similar to the film mm. um, in that it is, it's very kooky. Mm. You know, it's very, very uh, Minnesota nice, uh, if you will. So there are, there are certainly scenes that are just, you know, quite, quite startling in their brutality and then they're, you know, juxtaposed with other scenes that are, have this kind of slightly shop-worn kind of, um, you know, homeliness folksiness you know minnesota kind of folksiness see it's interesting because that that was that was one area of the kookiness that i thought was a bit different from previous iterations just because like you think about what fargo is right like it's basically it's about the subculture of the midwest Mm. especially that minnesota nice subculture and it's a very white subculture right it's Mm. like scandinavian imports Mm. uh immigrants i mean even something like um and yeah, like it, it, it's a part of the country that's associated with a particularly white Scandinavian kind of cutesiness, right? I'm even thinking like in Golden Girls, the four women all come from different parts of the States and the Betty White character comes from St. Olaf, Minnesota, mm. and she's like the hokiest of them. It's kind of funny, like when I was about to watch it, I was like, I wonder if, I wonder how this hokiness will play out, like say post-BLM, right? Post-Black Lives mm. Matter, because that Minnesota is also where George Floyd happened, right? Mm. I think I think it's where it happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. And this is set in 2019. Mm, just before that, just before pandemic. Which is that inflection before, yeah. point. Mm. So it's kind of interesting because I feel like it's like the series creators are much more cautious about being too cutesy. Mm. And about, so even the fact that it opens in the middle of this absolute vitriolic maelstrom 
at a PTA meeting. It's almost like it, there's a devolution of Minnesota nice from the outset. Like yeah. you start with these cute Midwestern people just absolutely going at it. Yes. And from there, like, it's interesting. Like, I feel like Jennifer Jason Lee plays a big role in that sense because, in that sense, because unlike the kind of cutesy white characters of the previous Fargo series, like she's a study in austerity. Mm. You know, she's she's completely austere compared to the normal vibe of the show. But her son, um, Juno Temple's wife, is probably the folksiest character in the show. He's mm. the most classic, yes sir, yes ma'am. But the way it plays out is he he presents as kind of cutesy in that way. He presents as Minnesota nice. But his whole Minnesota nice persona is backed by his mum's trust fund. Mm. And she's like, she's a far-right advocate. She's a guns-right advocate. She's a debt collector. So you have this, it's almost like it's deconstructing the earlier seasons and showing that beneath this veneer of, not necessarily, but in the thesis of this series, beneath this veneer of cutesiness and folksiness, is this kind of rampant white supremacy or this kind of violence? Yeah. So it's interesting. Like yeah. I feel like it's, it's very... It's a sort of crazy defence of home and hearth. Yeah, exactly. Which is revealed through these series of yep. abductions that take place in 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 her house and her yep. and her you know quest to defend herself. In some ways, it's kind of you know while it's a satire, obviously, of this mm. you know this right wing right winger and right wing ideology. It's also weirdly sort of promulgates a lot of these kind of crazy right-wing fantasies about about people uh, strange people trying to abduct you from your own house i think you're right i think that's that's really good way to put it yeah it's like this reframes the abduction narrative as a fear of anything that's not you know cutesy minnesota people yeah and, yeah and, spe- and speaking- minnesota people are nice but they're armed yeah exactly exactly <laughs> they bear arms <laughs> and it's funny like it's weird like to just the jennifer jason lee thing too reminded me a lot of like the Hudsucker Proxy. So mm. like, remember in the Hudsucker Proxy, just because there's a Coen Brothers connection, like this reminded me more of the Hudsucker Proxy than Fargo in some ways. Just remember in remember she plays the kind of Rosalind Russell kind of, you know, screwball, folksy, cutesy woman, like a big joke. And it's like, she comes from Muncie, Tim Robbins. Got, there's some, she comes from Muncie. I think Tim Robbins has to pretend he comes from Muncie, but there's some whole joke about American regionalism. It's like that... Energy is in this episode too, but Jennifer Jason Lee is like has a very different relationship to mm, it. So mm. it's, yeah, I guess it's, it's symbolically it straddles the Midwest and I guess what would you describe the the Northwest? So mm. the difference between Minnesota and North Dakota perhaps is that Absolutely. North Dakota is just you know this folksy ideology kind of just laid bare and becomes a kind of frontier. So yeah, I think got- there's a kind of symbolic space and the symbolic transition between these two exactly and spaces. And I feel like the series, like it's not, it's not trying to have a. Sorry, just turn the air conditioning on because it's sweltering in here. The series, like it's not trying to have a bad faith relationship with the earlier seasons, and it's not trying to ruin your enjoyment of the earlier seasons. But yeah, the thesis is almost like, at this moment, this inflection point in race relations. Mm, mm. You know, there are two Minnesotas. There's a Minnesota of Fargo, and the Minnesota of George Floyd, and we see that indirectly through this. Yeah. Through well, through Jennifer Jason yeah. Lee's empire. Yeah, let's back to all. I mean, Minnesota may well you know through you know white flight and mm. the aging population this is becoming a battleground state um well as this so, episode presented it's like the most schismatic state mm, mm. so the fissures ideological fissures mm. are kind of revealed through the the texture of this of this narrative i thought beyond all this um beyond all this this was an incredibly well directed pilot how, how it's amazing very cinematic and that the set pieces are incredible how amazing in particular is that petrol station yes thing. so it's 
just to give a bit more context that the Juno Temple character Dot, she flees the kidnappers. She takes refuge in a police in a, with the police officer. They take refuge in a petrol station. There's like a kind of a, a twenty minute siege scene basically where, and again, like I think this is something that feels a bit different from earlier seasons, maybe. Well, maybe not. Remember in the first season? Oh, you haven't said. In the first season, there's an incredible whiteout scene. Right. Like, and you get a real sense of the crushing scale of the Midwest. And here, you get such a huge sense of the crushing darkness of the Midwest. So, mm. Juno Temple and the police officer are basically just watching out at the darkness, waiting for the criminals to come after them. It's a beautiful set piece, isn't mm. it? Like, it's, mm. and, you, know, it's a, you know, sometimes on television, something can be s- cinematic in a kind of bit of a self-conscious, twee, hokey, look what we do. This is just beautiful, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think this pilot was directed by Noah Hawley. Oh, who has, he's a series who creator. Has, yeah, series creator who has a bit more of a background in not just TV but also film mm. as well. So it is it is very cinematic, mm. this pilot. So look, all in all, I thought this was a pretty wonderful pilot. Mm. Um, I, I thought it was funny. I thought it was tonally unpredictable. Mm. Um, I just thought it was incredibly tense. Mm. It was. It worked as a, as a thriller, as a satire. I liked it enough that I kind of almost felt like not just watching season five, but going back and revisiting mm. all of it, culminating. Mm. My one reservation, I know some viewers, not, at least, are not going to agree with this, I'm not a huge fan of John Hamm. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like Jennifer Jason Leigh, you know Temple, great. John Hamm... You're post-Hamm. I just... I've never been that into it. I feel like, I feel like he's sticky, and I feel like in Fargo... He could just be a bit sticky, so I feel okay. like maybe I'd be less into his character. But okay. what you see so far, like I really like the cop, I really like yeah. the other characters. So you think maybe a little 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 ham goes a long way? A little bit, bit hammy. Just just you like a, just a bit of ham sprinkled on your yeah. pizza. Well, it's like a, over Christmas this year, like we were with family friends. My mum was like, "What would you like to have for Christmas?" I'm like, "Truly, I don't need a huge ham. I want a little bit of the ham with <laughs> cheese in a toasted cheese and ham sandwich. That was my ideal Christmas. Right, like okay. that's my ham. That's your Minnesota nice. That's my Minnesota nice. So it's. Look, I thought this was great. Like I, it was. I, I agree. It was like watching a film in the best way, and I'm, I'm really keen actually to revisit the whole franchise. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I really enjoyed this, and I'm hard in. I yeah. want to watch more. Yeah, it was fantastic. On to our next series now. Very different form, hmm. very different tone. Still, still snowy. Still snowy. <laughs> still around that kind of border, borderland of the mm. US and Canada. This one north of the border, though. Scott Pilgrim takes off. So this anime series was developed by Brian Lee O'Malley and Ben David Grabinski for Netflix. Uh, it's based on the Scott Pilgrim graphic novels, which are actually drawn by Brian O'Malley. Uh, oh, right. Interesting, this is also a return of the, the whole cast from the 2010 film adaptation, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. This is something that surprised me about it. I thought... It would be some other Scott Pilgrim narrative or part of a franchise, but so far it's basically the same story yeah, as the it, film. Isn't it feels it? like it feels like it is, it is uh, perhaps an expansion of the world of the film, mm. uh, but nonetheless pretty tracking pretty closely against its narrative. Like the main beats I remembered from the film were all here in this half-hour pilot or twenty-minute pilot. That's right. That's right. So that Edgar Wright movie, which is very acclaimed but um, underseen, and has since become. Definitely a, a huge cult classic. Mm, right. Um, has been you know, expanded in this in this um, recent series. Um, so, just to briefly, I guess, recap. Rule, I guess, recap the the plot. Um, apparently, that although this does appear to adopt the contours of the film, it actually has a different plot. 
Oh. And that this is a little misleading. This is where sometimes doing a pilot show can be can be a bit tricky. Oh. So in the the end of this pilot it was a little bit of a spoiler, but it's a twenty four minute episode, so mm. come on. Uh, <laughs> Scott Pilgrim disappears. Mm. So the remainder of the series then follows his love interest, Ramona Flowers, as she tries to figure out who was responsible for his disappearance. Oh wow. Yeah, it's while the other characters create a fictional version of, of Scott Pilgrim's life. So that's that does not appear to be at all the case in this pilot. So that's hence the takes off. Yes, okay. the takes off. So this is something that really subverts, I guess, the viewer's expectations mm. because really up until reading what happens after, I had no idea. In fact, I thought this this is almost just a complete remake and expansion. So the fact that, that the pilot seems like a remake is almost a bit of a twist. Yeah, I think it's entirely a red herring. Mm. So um, there, I guess that, that makes it more interesting because if mm. this was just a, a retread of the, the, the movie, you're kind of thinking, what's the point? But it makes yeah. sense too, right? Because one of the things that, like I said, surprised me was how much of the movie, it's like a 20-minute condensation of the movie. Mm. I was like... There's so much of the movie in here. What what will happen in yeah, the episodes? Yeah, it's just going to be subsequent battles, expanded mm. battles. Yeah. Um, so no, apparently not. It's it's going to be much much more playful with the original source material. Should we give just a brief overview yeah. of what, what what actually happens? So in the brief original? overview. Yeah. This is set in Toronto, Canada, around the turn of the century. So a nice little period piece mm. of the noughties. Um So there are some similarities with the original series. So our protagonist Scott Pilgrim is a, ba- a bassist in an indie rock band. He falls in love with a new girl in town from New York, Ramona Flowers. This attracts the ire of Ramona's evil exes. Mm. Like in the movie, the exes then challenge Scott to battle. Um, So the first evil ex, Matthew Patel, is involved in this first battle. And this is where there's a kind of divergence in the Scott Pilgrim timeline. Mm. So... um, like in the original, the voice cast is back. So Michael Sarah, Scott Pilgrim, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Ramona, Ramona Flowers, and, you know, really stacked voice cast. Anna Kendrick, Chris Evans, Kieran Culkin, mm. Alison Pill, Aubrey Plaza, Jason Schwartzman. I mean, it's it's a rogues. It's rogues. such a kind of young adult indie ensemble cast. Yeah. Circa yeah. 2010. Yeah. Um, and it, tonally, it does feel very similar to the film as well mm. because we have this... Um, very sort of light, lightly playful kind of satirical representation of this kind of sort of like indie sad boy mm. um, Scott Pilgrim who you kind of wonder you know what what does what does this you know this uh, really interesting girl see in him mm. um, and and kind of it's while it also you know invites us to sympathize with this character it also has a kind of nice sort of satirical critical distance mm. from his him as well so um, there are some nice little touches visually mm. that, that undergird that kind of, the slight sort of stereo-comic distance we have yep. from him. Yep. Um, so it's very playful with the, the graphic novel form or this mm. sort of film graphic novel. Lots of like little nice uses of the, pa- of the panel. Um, sort of yeah, sit- it's beautiful. Sit- it's beautiful to look at. Yeah, yeah. It, captures, it has a great sense of space, mm. Toronto in midwinter. Mm. Um, that was one of the things I really loved about it. Like... I kind of feel like it's such, it is such a great period piece of that time, and you know we've talked about this a lot. But that time, the time we grew up in, late nineties, early two thousands, the kind of millennium approaches kind of era, mm. like it was a time when there was such 
a delicate tension between the material world and the kind of virtual world. Mm. And this obviously is a part of that narrative-wise. So, you know, Scott Pilgrim goes from the real world, inverted commas, to fighting all these exes, ex-boyfriends in a kind of gaming space. And, yeah. and the 2010 film was kind of quite groundbreaking, I remember, in the way in which it... In, you know, the extent to which it integrated and the elegance with which it integrated gaming into film. Yeah, but that, that sort of anachronistic 90s-style yep. arcade gaming. Arcade gaming. Mm. Um, but there's other things here the that Two-dimensional kind of... Two-dimensional. Which is nicely mapped against the two-dimensionality of the panel, the graphic novel panel. I agree. Like the aesthetic is very complementary. I agree. And it's, so having seen it in film, those two worlds coming together, like real life and gaming, arcade life, it... It's quite uncanny watching it in animation. Like it's, it's, it's kind of a shock of recognition seeing it done this way. It's kind of familiar yet unfamiliar mm. from the film. But also just like plot points that I really love. So like the moment when he falls in love with Ramona is the moment like it, it's, it involves an earlier iteration of Netflix, what we called quick flicks in Australia, where the DVD was delivered to your house. Yeah. So she is the DVD deliverer. Yeah. So he has this moment when he opens the door and he receives a DVD from her, so kind of material media, but immediately propels him into this kind of alternative universe, this yeah. ethereal universe. And I think in the in the film, when I look it up, I was like, was that the subplot in the film? But of course, in 2010 that kind of home delivery service was still... It wasn't kind of retro. Still it was still, So yeah. it, was, it was an Amazon delivery in the yes, film. Yes, yes. So stuff that... Nice little Easter egg. That was great. So shout out. That was an example, I thought, of just this... The, the material and ethereal worlds coming together mm. or the material and mediated worlds coming together in a way that was very late 90s and early mm. 2000s. Of course, this was also on the precipice of the, the comic book explosion. Comic the main book streaming, explosion, yeah. The mainstreaming of nerd culture mainstreaming as well. Of, so there's something like Scott Pilgrim is kind of aligning himself with, with indie, the indie true. spirit. That's true, here, yeah. In a way that I don't think that, that sort of... Um, you know, that set of interests mm. or aesthetic would, would necessarily be alternative today, it would be, be pretty thoroughly mainstream. But Marvel. back then it was really just on the precipice of becoming mainstream. I was going to say the other thing that I, I mean, the thing, it's funny because when I remember the film, I'm just trying to find the name of this place here, Baldwin Steps. When, when I remember the film, it's a very like distinct memory I have of the film of just like, and again, it's like, it feels so of that era, the early 2000s of like individual spaces separated by kind of notional virtual digital merc so mm. i remember like um his share house with kieran culkin i yeah. remember the concept but the place i remember above all is i look it up the baldwin steps so there's a scene here where they go for a walk in whatever the main park is in toronto him and ramona go for a walk at night um and they walk up these the staircase called the baldwin steps which gives them a kind of panoramic view of toronto i remember this scene so acutely from the original like it's it's a really dank scene like there's a nice view of Toronto, of course, but it's cold. Mm. It's uncomfortable. It's not especially romantic. The conversation is a bit awkward. Mm. And the whole thing doesn't flow as a date that well. Mm. And it just I feel like in the late 90s, early 2000s, the more the virtual world encroached, the danker the actual physical world felt. Like mm. I think it's like why well, in films like Fight Club and in Seven and in The Matrix... The actual physical world is always like dripping, decaying. And mm. There's just something about that scene where in the midst of all this, you know, this whole virtual world that comprises a lot of the series, you have this awkward date in this kind of dank, you know, slightly underwhelming, slightly inhospitable physical space. That to me is just, it's such a, I think back to late 90s, early 2000s, and it's always feeling like, you know, you're hanging out in some car park or staircase or 
you know, decrepit mall that feels even danker because you know no a new virtual world's near. Yeah, yeah. I thought I thought, I thought it really just between that staircase scene and the kind of Netflix delivery scene, it was such a good period piece. Like it captured mm. the period so well mm. in a in a different way from. It's funny because it retrojects it too. I mean, obviously there was no, I don't think there was any Netflix home delivery in the early 2000s. So yeah, it, I think there might have been. There might have been. Yeah. But yeah, so it just... That's, yeah, so that's the way the business started out. Was it that early though? Like 2001, 2002? I think so, yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, so it's a perfect, to me, it's a perfect period piece. Like it really, yeah, it just took me back mm. completely. Did you ever get DVDs delivered in the mail? I did. I got quick flicks. Um and I, you know, it's kind of, and again, like I remember this real sense of it being like an almost mystical experience where you get the DVD delivered, and not so much getting the DVD delivered, but returning it. So this sense that you've watched this film. I remember the time when I was trying to watch a lot of Clint Eastwood films, so I got a lot delivered. You watch this film, you, you enter this completely imaginary space, but then to return it, you have to do something as bluntly material as find your nearest um, post box. Yeah, so yeah, remember yeah. where we are, where we were living in Concord at the time. There's a post box on Burwood Road, the end of Burwood Road, down towards the Bushels Coffee Factory. And in my mind, that post box is like a portal <laughs> yeah. to so many different films. In fact, it's almost when I think about it, because at the time I was getting quick flicks and I was getting, I was going to the Blockbuster, Concord Blockbuster. Lot. So in my mind, it's almost like there's a kind of, there's some kind of virtual under, underground passage between that post box and the Blockbuster. In my mind, they're yeah. the same space. So yeah. it's all the way of saying like that for, for the mm. film... Like sorry, so, so I guess that's that, that sense, you know, in that or in that time where your portals and thresholds were so well, exactly were so big, and it makes sense that you know the whole crux of this, like the the quilting point of this episode, is her delivering the Netflix mm. DVD. Like it mm. makes sense that everything, the whole aesthetic, emanates out from that. Mm. Yeah, mm. it's like, and even like the fact, like I wondered, it, like I feel like we live in a time now where where social media is so weaponized, like for mm. good and for bad, and it's almost like. You have these two different things happening. The series is very weaponized social media space where he's fighting off exes, he's fighting off all the other men she could be with. But then you have these residues of nineties dankness too. Mm, mm. Those steps, Andrew. <laughs> so I always say, like with you and me, it's like remember we went the, the place we went to camp at high school in the Hawkesbury River. Yeah, like yeah, back yeah. in nineteen ninety seven, that place to me is the epitome. It was a great camp. But yeah. It's the epitome of nineties dank. Like yes. that Hawkesbury River, it was raining. That to me is the same kind of space as, <laughs> as, as these steps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, look, I, I think this is this is an interesting adaptation. Mm. Um, it does I, I like the aesthetic? I think it's it's funny. It's got a good sense of humor. Yeah, it's great. Um, and I like the idea that it's it's deviating from the the film. Yeah. Because when I, I, first, I had no sense of that. Yeah. Right. When I first thought it was just tracking against the film, I was like, well, it just makes me want to go back and watch that. But if mm. it's something different, something a little little uh you know a little playful with the, the source material then i'm more on board it did make me want to rewatch a film i haven't seen that since i saw it in the movies yeah i feel like it could be a fun one to watch yeah like it's like is aubrey plaza in the film as well sure are, are all these people in the i mean i remember kieran culkin i remember chris evans is definitely in it is emma stone in it uh no no i don't think so okay yeah i remember all like it's funny like the, brie larson i think is brie it? larson okay all these people yeah. before well, they, really they were household names. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like funny people. Like going yes. back and watching a film, like oh, they were all in that. Like, yeah, yeah. Look, I'm I'm in. I thought this was great. Yeah, yeah. All right, I'm attentive in. Yeah, no, I loved it. Okay, on to our next show. This is another animation series. Yeah, this week. two yeah. animations I in know. a week. I feel like what's going on? It's funny, isn't it? Like I feel like, you know, both of us love film and television, but we've often seen animation as like an, a different medium. Yeah. 
but watching these two shows this week made me, made me feel like oh, I need to get more into it because mm. when it's when it's good, yeah, it's good. You've got to get into anime, Billy. Yeah, well, I feel like that's another area like I should watch more of because all the things I love about film, like great spaces, atmosphere, cityscapes, yeah. it seems like it's just intensified. How are you going with World One Build? Piece? Oh, watch the whole thing. <laughs> I loved it. Amazing. Um, Drew thinks that when I say I'm hard in for shows, I don't end up watching them. But oh, I'm actually thinking of starting another One Piece podcast. Yeah, it's going to be great. Um, but look, if Scott Pilgrim was good... This, I thought, was incredible. Like, this, to me, I thought was about the best animation can get. We're talking about the series Scavenger's Reign. Um, just to give a bit of an overview of what it's about, it's come out this year, obviously. Um, it's created by uh, two animators, Joseph Bennett and Charles Wetner, based on a 2016 short film called Scavengers. It's 12 episodes, and each episode is, what, 20, 25 minutes? Yep. And the premise is incredible. So the premise is it's a science fiction series. It's about a cargo ship. Uh, intergalactic cargo ship called the Demeter 227. Mm. Reference to? The Dracula, mm. Mr. Dracula. So like Last Voyage of the, the Demeter. The Last Voyage of the Demeter. Demeter-centred uh, content, I hasn't know, it? that's true. Um, I didn't say that. Was it good? Uh, I haven't. Because I love that director, Andre. Um, but basically, the, the premise is brilliant and simple at once. It's an interstellar cargo ship. It crashes on an alien planet called the Vesta, or called Vesta. The crew are separated. Um, they're, they're basically in three groups and they spend the series making their way back towards the, um, the wrecked ship in an effort to get home. So this first episode sets up where each of them are, what they're doing. But that, I think that plot summary doesn't do credit at all. <laughs> Undersells what's going on here. It does. I it? mean, <laughs> and because it's so incredible, maybe it's useful to approach it indirectly. Remember recently I was reading about June and mm. apparently one of... Frank Herbert's inspirations for Dune was he was doing some work with a friend, I think in the Oregon sand dunes, and the ecology of the dunes inspired his vision of the planet. I think like Dune is such a great example of how like great science fiction is often ecologically rich. Mm. So you have a sense of not just conflicts between people, not just relationships between people and planets, but the entire ecosystem of the planet. Yeah. And this does that incredibly. So what, you know, what we see in the three subplots of Scavenger's Reign are basically three different ecosystems on this planet. And again, a bit like the opening of Fargo, it's a very, the whole thing is in media's race. Like we, although the, the, you know, the members of the crew have been crashed for some time, it's clear they're still getting their heads around these ecosystems. And so we kind of meet them in the midst of trying to fathom what these ecosystems are and just, the world building in these ecosystems, visually, ecologically, <laughs> conceptually, is so dense and yeah. so rich. You can see that's where the, the heart of the series really lies oh. in the in the ecological world building. Well, it's kind of like exactly. It's like it's like alternative alternative kind of ecology. Um, <laughs> this is like if, if if David Attenborough decided to uh, create a, an anime series, mm. then this this is the sort of thing that he might. That's create. what it would be exactly. And the planet itself, I mean, it's. It's interesting whether you consider the planet, the depiction of the planet to be science fiction or not. So the planet is like a bit like Pandora in Avatar. Mm. It's better, but it's a bit, I mean, Pandora's good, but it's better in that the entire planet seems to be a single sentient entity. Mm. And there's an, there's an extraordinary continuum between all living things, but also between living and non-living things. Mm. And you could call that science fiction, or you could just call it, you know, 
a kind of a certain radical approach to what a planet is, like mm. the kind of Gaia hypothesis. But there's just such an incredible protean continuum between the living and non-living world. And it kind of means that the humans who survive, like it's like the only way out of the planet is through it. Mm. So they have to kind of engage in these acts of like radical symbiosis with the planet mm. and creative symbiosis with the planet. They have to collaborate with the planet to kind of to escape it. Mm. So you have just this incredible emergent vision of life. And, you know, I guess partly because this is a planet where humans haven't evolved. So there's no, mm. it's not at all anthropocentric. So you have this mm. just... It's a complete collapse in particular of like organic and inorganic, and inorganic life. life. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's just, it's like a kind of, it's such an incredible vision of the cosmos. It's such an incredible vision of ecological complexity at its most profound and such an incredible, I mean, it, you know, I know you've mentioned on the show that, you know, on the podcast that more and more series feel like they're kind of clarifying in direct ways. Mm. And this is definitely, I mean, it's not about climate, but it's about the need for survival through, yeah, radical symbiosis with yeah. your surroundings. Yeah. And, I mean, there's, there's constant reference here to to uh, conservation, to, you know, survival, to, mm. to sustenance, mm. to sustainability. Mm. So all of these, are they, they, they seem to prefigure Yep. a climate-ravaged future. Yeah, and it's kind of... The series has such an incredible dynamic to it too because it's like even as they're trying to escape the planet, they're hybridising with it. Mm. Like they're becoming a part of it even as they try to escape it. I just thought... And, you know, above and beyond that stuff, conceptually just the imagination and the detail and the visual beauty of this series. It's As you said, it, it would be like if suddenly we found ourselves on a planet we'd never visited before and David Attenborough was there to kind of, as he does so brilliantly, to take us through all the weirdest parts of it. Yes, and yes. I, I, I love, I thought, yeah. I, thought this was, I thought this was sublime. I think, I think what's really, really powerful uh, and effective about this show is the fact that it, it sort of evokes the kind of more sort of conventional science fiction, this kind of animated, children's animation mm. where you see an alternative world but it's, it's this kind of benign, you know, um, you know, world that's living in kind of organic harmony. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of animals here and plants even that look cute, you know, that, that you know, really trigger our, our predisposition towards, you know, anthropomorphizing mm. uh, and sentimentalizing um, the natural world. But it, this series just constantly undercuts that mm. and suggests that there is, you know, there's a kind of amorality mm. to this world. Um, and perhaps that that amorality is is itself something that that we need to is, is perhaps even beyond our just moral understanding, mm. um, because there are, there are lots of sort of cutesy animals that have interactions with the different characters here, but then they they end up in relationships of predation or mm. parasitism. Um, so the the kind of cuteness of them is is betrayed, uh, but it suggests a kind of you know the extent of human understanding mm. and perhaps you know human hubris mm. to kind of try to sort of colonize these animals and plants through our kind of sentimental register absolutely um, yeah it's a great way to put it yeah so it, it often this show really reminded me of an interview i saw with david Attenborough. And david Attenborough can be kind of this kind of avuncular sort of cutesy figure and i think the interviewer asked him asked him oh you know um, having seen so much of the natural world does it not make you aware of god's grandeur David Attenborough says, no, not at all. Um, if you take, you know, a panda 
and the cute panda, you have to also take it that God created a parasitic worm that lives in a starving African child's eye. Yep. Um, so this has that. This is almost like a kind of animated version of that, it that response. It reminds you too of something that like, I think Darwin said, like they said, you know, someone said, when you look at the human brain, you're filled with wonder. He said, actually, it's when I look at the brain of an ant. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it reminds, and this, is, this, is a, this is a much vaguer reference. This is very vague, almost too vague to actually be worth saying. But there's a bit in you know, Stephen Shaviro, the sci-fi critic, he talks about some sci-fi novel. I forget the name of the novel. I forget who it's by, but it's about a human, some alternative universe where humans enter into a symbiotic relationship with an alien species. And the alien mates with human and they have a very intimate connection. And the alien lays eggs in the human's organs or something and the human gives birth and the human dies in the process. So mm. the alien and the human do have this intimate connection, mm. but it's not an emotional connection in the same way as a normal human connection. The human does die as a result of it. So it's like it feels like that here, like when when there is a destructive relationship between humans and other organisms on Vesta, it's not hostility as we understand it. No. But when there's a positive reaction, it's not an emotional connection as we understand it either. Like it's something it's yeah. whether there's, it has, has an uncanniness to the kind of life force yeah. that exists on this planet, mm. this will to life mm. that is more overwhelming than mm. even the humans' attempts to tame it or mm. dominate it. Mm. Um, there's there's something so so alive, so abundant here, mm. and there's something paradoxically terrifying about the abundance. And also with that, often it's very ambiguous what is life. Yeah. Which makes it so like life becomes more than just immediately discernible organisms. Yeah. As you said, it becomes this force that at moments in the pilot seems able to animate or inject life into otherwise inanimate objects at will yeah. and then retreat from them. So yeah. it's like it's a radical vision of what life is mm, and mm. it makes you realise the strangeness of what life is. Yeah, that's true. And it's, you, and which is the best that science guess, fiction can do, right? Yeah, that, that, that idea that we live in a, in a web, mm. a web of interconnections mm. and the boundaries of, you know, our, of our individuality, you know, uh, permeable porous yeah uh, porous yeah so this is profound look I, there's a surrealistic element to it as well mm. this and it, it did remind me of some of the this great you know surrealistic um cartoons of the or animations of the 70s like yep. fantastic planet mm. um in particular mm. uh, remind me of that so the fact that these these animations were really driven by um you know the cultural revolution mm. changes in you know, relations, gender relations and our relationship to our environment. Mm. Um, it, it feels prescient. It feels like a perhaps this is going to kickstart a kind of modern type of surrealism mm. in response to the kind of ecological catastrophe that we're undertaking, the Anthropocene. Uh, perhaps this is going to be a response to it and this might be, it might spur and generate a lot of other um, texts like it. I mean, I, I think... Um, Annihilation, Alex Garland's sci-fi sci-fi film, which I thought was really powerful. That this that was more of a horror incarnation of this, which is more of a kind of drama thriller. But um, and the Alien films, of course, obviously mm. feel prescient here as well. But perhaps there's going to be some sort of movement in response to the Anthropocene. Well, the Annihilation's a good analogy, isn't it? Because for those mm. who haven't seen it, I mean, it's about this event that descends on the Californian coast, the Shimmer, mm. and what we learn in the film is that once you enter the Shimmer all the, ge the genetic components of all organisms in the shimmer start to fuse. Mm. I think sur like surrealism is a good analogy, right? Because, you know, I'm sure you know, like the 
the technical meaning of surrealism is not unreal but more than real mm. or more real like the heightened reality of dreams and that kind of ties back to what i was saying like at the beginning like in one sense this is science fiction it doesn't seem real but actually is this just a kind of a, an enhanced kind of realism mm. that shows how radically continuous with we are with all living and inanimate things so yeah. it's like it's like there's a kind of it's like there's an enhanced reality effect here that's kind of dreamlike and accurate mm. at the mm. same time and the way it's shot as well is a sort of compendium of different characters who mm. are interspersed in different ecosystems mm. it's almost like this is taking a kind of ecological perspective mm. on things this kind of third person yep. but it's not a god like I'm, it's like a kind of ecological omniscience mm. um, exploring the connections or the webs between these mm. different ecosystems on the planet like an ecological ensemble drama yeah yeah so look it's 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 pretty it's pretty striking it's pretty groundbreaking it's a bit more of a banal observation too but i mean i think it really works with like 20 25 minute episodes you just get yeah. like a, you get a glimpse of just one little chunk of an ecosystem and that's you know it, it evokes complexity from there yeah i i was i thought this was startling like mm. startlingly beautiful sublime um yeah it was it was sublime it's mm. it's I can see why it's been greeted with mm. such acclaim. Mm. I'm a hardy, and I think this for me was my favourite show this week. I mean, mm. Fargo was great, mm. but have you watched any more of it? I haven't yet. No. I, I, I only I, watched it today. Yeah, right. I, I watched it just before you went to Cambodia, and it's kind of funny. I've been, I've been saving. I thought we might watch it together or watch one, you know, each time we do a podcast. I mean, just to kind of immerse ourselves in it. Mm. But mm. yeah, I I loved it. Mm. it I'm hard in. Hard in. All right. On to our archive corner for this week. This is Slow Horses. Slow Horses is a spy thriller. It's based on the Slough House series of novels by Mick Heron. It's an Apple TV series. Mm. And while a lot of people have sort of been quite disparaging about what happens when something's put on the Apple TV Plus platform, this does appear to have resonated with with audiences hugely popular this has been recommended to me by lots of people and mm. I, I watch all a few different e- walks of life different ages yeah. different demographics this is why this is why i chose it because it has been recommended to me it's got crossover three or four times yeah so it appears to be a sort of four quadrant show uh it originally premiered the first series which is based on the novel uh slow horses in april 2022 the second series premiered later that same year it was based on uh, second novel, Dead Lions, and the third series uh, premiered late last year. Um, so the showrunner's Will Smith, <laughs> no relation to wow. the uh, the slap. Well, from Wild Wild West to uh, <laughs> to Slow Horses. Yeah, and the fourth season's going to apparently come out by the end of this year. So it's already been renewed for a fifth series, mm. uh, which will be based on the fifth book in the series, London Rules. So mm. Apple TV Plus appears for all intents and purposes to have a real hidden its hands mm. so it'll be interesting to discuss why that might be mm. uh, so a bit more about the premise of slow horses so uh, slough house is a kind of purgatory for mi5 agents who have committed a kind of catastrophic career otherwise career ending mistake uh, they're den- uh, denigrated as slow horses and they have to just see out the rest of their careers in this kind of uh, through this kind of administrative, dull, routine, drudgery. They're basically on indefinite detention. Yeah, they've been put out to pasture even before their time, if you will. Uh, so their boss, who is a real miser, played by Gary Oldman, is called Jackson Jackson Lamb. And his role is basically 
to kind of torture them into quitting. Mm. Um, so in our initial pilot, which is called uh, Failure's Contagious, we're introduced to uh, probably the closest thing this series has to a protagonist, MI5 agent River Cartwright, who gets demoted to Slough House instead of being fired as a result of his failure to adequately conduct surveillance on Robert Hobden. And, I oh, sorry, my apologies. He, uh, inadequate uh, surveillance in a training exercise at uh, Heathrow Airport. And as a result of this, um, this failure, even though it was a, still a training exercise, mm. um, instead of being fired because he has some powerful connections, he is, he is basically consigned to the Slough House where he's put on some menial tasks including the surveillance of a right-wing politician. It's quite funny, just, a, just as an aside, like, I mean, I thought there were great, there was great stuff in this, but there's definitely an element here of Guise Noir. Yeah, yeah. And, like, that opening scene, it's kind of like... I think, actually, the rest of the, the pilot is much better than that opening chase scene, but it's funny, like, that opening, you know, the scene they're trying to track down the terrorist, um, it's kind of, like, kinetic and geriatric at the same time. <laughs> yeah. So it's, like, ten minutes of him running through train station, all this stuff, and Kristen Scott Thomas is on the intercom the whole time saying, find the suspect. Find the suspect. <laughs> bit of a like, bit of a funny twist. Yeah, too, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. No, no, absolutely, absolutely. So look, there's there's quite a lot of plot machinations in this pilot, which mm. I don't think we really need to get into. No. Um, beyond the fact that this starts to broaden out and become more of an ensemble yeah. as we get to know the other the other sort of cast of rogues that form uh, this this slough house, house slow horse uh, division. Oh. Slow, so we, slow horse is a pun on slow house. I, I think so. I didn't pick up on that. Oh. Yikes. You might be a bit of a slow horse yourself, maybe man. I'm the, maybe I'm the geezer. <laughs> so introduced to his colleague, uh, Sidoni Sid Baker. Um, and, well, I mean, uh, also, yeah, look, I mean... Look, we can probably can can I, go can, on plot-wise, but I, it's not really that important, Yeah, can it? I... <laughs> l- 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 let me give you maybe a, a condensed plot summary... Um, young clean cut agent does something wrong, gets transferred to a place where Gary Oldman is in charge and he's, <laughs> and he's gross. <laughs> That's very true. That's it. It's very true. It. Yeah. So Gary Oldman really dials it up here. He is, uh, he is just, you know, he is, he is as operatic and as slimy as you've ever seen him. And I kind of feel like that. I mean, I've seen a couple of episodes of this and I feel like most of the, all the plot stuff, all, all of it is basically just meat and potatoes, state of Britain fair, right? Yeah, like it's, yeah. it's pretty mid, yeah. apart from Gary Oldman. <laughs> so Gary Oldman, I think, is, is the reason to watch his show. Yeah. And it, it's interesting, like watching it, I mean, it is interesting because you do have this quite, you know, like pedestrian, I think, narrative. But then Gary Oldman's performance is so flamboyant and so charismatic and so disgusting. Like it feels like there's something in this series there's a kind of, there's something about going on about bureaucracy, right? Like yeah, it just seems yeah. like as these government institutions become more and more bureaucratised, more and more hierarchical, more and more corporatised, there's, there's leakage, there's yeah. a kind of return of the repressed. So it's like Gary Oldman almost like embodies this nostalgia for an older kind of like kitchen sink grime. Yeah. <laughs> when getting getting the job done before bureaucracy. So everything, I mean, he's almost Dickensian in how revolting yeah. he is. So when... The young guy, I'm just going to call him young guy. When the young guy goes into his office for the first time... Cartwright. Cartwright goes to his office for the first time. I mean, Gary Oldman's got his feet up on the desk, no shoes on, and his socks are kind of only, you know, 
improperly darned. I mean, yeah. that's a Dickensian tabloid. <laughs> Gary Oldman's first task... He's cutting his toenails. Cutting right? his toenails, yeah. <laughs> Gary Oldman's first task for Cartwright is just to get him to sort through garbage from the seat, sheet, sheet, uh, the street outside for yeah. no apparent reason. So, you know, it's it's <laughs> raining outside, it's dismal. The inside of Cartwright's office is just covered in, like, fetid trash. It's just like this real relishing of a certain kind of disgusting British... Center. It reminded me of Withnail and I. Yeah, so you know those yeah, opening yeah. scenes of Withnail and I, they're just so gross. Like, you know, that scene in Withnail and I in the cafe where there's like sodden newsprint, there's that, you know, the liquid egg that someone's pouring off their toast. Like it's <laughs> it's just like this nostalgia. It's like Slayer this nostalgia for all things that are kind of grossly British, like both yeah. in terms of grime, but also kind of in terms of tabloid sensationalism. Yeah. Like, you know, like the person they're following is a journalist or there's some journalism angle. Yeah. It's like... There's a far right wing kind of... Yeah. You know, uh, Thought leader. Yeah. 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 But so, I agree. I agree. A lot of this series does rely on the, the yeah. kind of, you know, what has been, what has been repressed, what has been objected yep. by this, by this kind of new, the new Britain yep. of the towering skyscrapers of the Ab- city. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the kind of, you know, uh, I guess the glassiness of Heathrow Airport, yep. new Heathrow Airport. Um, exactly. I mean, so I kind yeah. of feel like it's not really a plot driven series as far as I can. I mean, the plot's well, like, I think the, it's conceptually, the, plot's the idea fine. is brilliant. Yeah. The idea of this is brilliant, sure. don't you think? I mean, the idea that there's a, there's a kind of, you know, uh, cast off, yeah. Kind of, you know, um, separate, you know, career dead end track for uh, yeah. for for the incompetence. The plot the, in the public's the plot. I mean, the plot's fine. Like it's like yeah. new, new tricks. The concept is great. The, concept, the plot yeah. is. I agree with you. I completely agree with you. Mm. The plot is is pretty mad, but the concept is great. Yeah, well, there's a kind of tension, isn't there? Because the whole plot, at some level, is about Cartwright getting professionally getting out of this space. He wants mm. professionally get out. So Cartwright professionally wants to get out, but the message of the show is aesthetically, this is actually where you want to be. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So I just feel like it is all about the magnetism of Gary Oldman. It's like it's waiting for Gary Oldman. It's almost like in the logic of Slough House, Gary Oldman's the boss just because he's the grossest. Yeah. Like it's like the most revolting person rises to the top. So yeah, it's really enjoyable to watch it. It's kind of, it's kind of enjoyable. I mean, I like... I like depictions of older characters or old age, which are just kind of unrepentantly messy. Yeah, it's yeah, a bit like yeah, the true. kind of um, <coughs> the Sarah Lang. <coughs> sorry, the Sarah Lang. <coughs> sorry, I had a bit of a cookie during the podcast, <laughs> and that's the um. It's a bit like the kind of Sarah Lancashire character in Happy, um, Happy Valley. Like it's just you know a kind of a, a defiantly messy kind of older or middle aged character. So I think I think it's a bit where like Gary Oldman says, "Is it me or did all the fun go out of everything around 1979?" <laughs> so it's just like it's like it's just like a certain British way. Gary Oldman's punk rock. <laughs> yeah, or just or like kitchen sink, like just kitchen sink abject grime. I feel like the series is just so nostalgic. Yeah. nostalgic for that yeah well I guess you, you think that's also allied with a kind of older type of spycraft yep which is you know low tech uh, interpersonal yep. um, often unglamorous yeah and interpersonal in a kind of up close and sweatily discomforting kind of way like you know the, the nitty gritty of kind of you know stealth work yeah I mean this reminded me a lot of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy yes Gary Oldman's of character <laughs> but you know even more browns yeah even more beiges and just even more... Like, remember the scene in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy 
when he goes swimming in the Thames. Yeah. In like the, just the dank Thames. <laughs> this whole series is like that texture. You really, really, like you own that word dank. <laughs> it's funny, as I said that, as I said that, I was like, have I used the word dank one time too many this episode? I feel like it was so good for Scott Pilgrim. I feel like that dank's like, it's just like polluted. Yeah. Just yeah, a polluted yeah. Thames. Yeah. So, yeah. It's grimy. It's grimy. That grimy. Grime. So, yeah, 50s, 60s, 70s style. Yeah. Uh, you know, British yeah. kind of aesthetic. They, they're kind of, you know, the, the wall Berlin mm. in the kind of grime of Berlin, that, that sort of older type of spy yeah, craft. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. John Le Carre. Yeah. So it's almost like you have this series and it's almost like Gary Oldman, his character's critique of the younger generation. It's almost like metatextually it extends to a certain kind of prestige British show as well. So yeah. it's almost like, imagine a show like Bodyguard. Yes. You have a show like Bodyguard and like Gary Oldman's in it and he's just so unimpressed with it. <laughs> yeah, That's true. what this is like. Like true. a prestige, slightly by the numbers, slightly bureaucratic crime series. And then Gary Oldman's in the middle of it and he's just so unimpressed with everything that's happening around him. True. That's true. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's it's good. good. I, I like, I like the, the sense that this is, this is, you know, sort of has its feet in both, both of these worlds. Yep. You know, it's a bridge really between yep. this older older kind of you know more kind of kitchen spin mm. kitchen sink style mm. um you know uh british procedural mm. and the kind of the glossy kind of uh netflix style yep. uh high-tech thriller and i just feel like with gary oldman like he's got he's got a particular kind of charisma and like sometimes i can find him quite sticky mm. and i just feel like the key to gary oldman is just make him gross <laughs> you know like have you ever seen nil by mouth like that film directed? he's gross in not. that he's gross in hannibal like you yes. know, in, in the film of Hannibal, like yes. just just make him gross or grotesque. Like all his best roles are basically that. Yeah. And I kind of feel like something like Dracula. Like I feel like Dracula, the Coppola Dracula, is a good example. Where he doesn't fully embrace the grossness, so for me, it doesn't fully work. But just abject. Yeah. You know, the certain kind of British abject aesthetic so well. Yeah. So it's just to me is like a, a pinnacle <laughs> Gary Oldman performance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So look. I agree with you in terms of the plot. It's not like scintillating plot-wise. Look, maybe I should say it. the plot was fine. I just love Gary Oldman's grossness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a vehicle for him. Yeah, yeah. It's a vehicle, a vehicle for a certain tone, yep. a certain aesthetic. I don't care about Cartwright. <laughs> I did not. I could not care less about Cartwright. Um, I can understand why this series has, has real cut through. Yeah, it's, it's really, great. Has really connected to the masses, or at least the masses who are somehow subscribed to Apple TV Plus. Yep. yep. It's like. It's like seeing Gary Oldman like trying to break his way out of an Apple TV Plus aesthetic. <laughs> true, true. With like you know by cutting his toenails, having improperly darned socks, <laughs> belt. Did there some there's some point of view scene where he's farting or belching? Like yeah, it's just, the yeah. whole thing is just it feels like that's uh, you can almost smell him watching <laughs> yes. it. You can almost smell his he's office. Fetid. Yeah, fetid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so have you? Will you revisit this? Yeah, well, I think so. Like it's 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 a good it's a good show to watch with parents. Yeah. And older members of your family. It's a yeah. good crossover. So yeah. I, I probably will watch all of yeah. it at some point. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's new tricks adjacent. <laughs> I've seen a lot of new tricks <laughs> in my time. I've seen a lot of new tricks. Yeah, um, it occupies that space that we all need. We all need. We all need to, to Well, this watch. is the great unspoken thing. Or like the, the geezer police is often one of the most comfy. I, I like the geezer, geezer pleaser when it's slightly misanthropic. <laughs> like the sentimental geezer pleaser, not You're so right. much, but the slightly misanthropic or like slightly um, jaundiced spiky yeah spiky and yeah obviously happy valley is is much more than a geezer pleaser like it's transcendent but older characters who are still spiky and jaundiced 
I love that. Okay. Yes, this is, so I'm, I'm an in for this. I thought it was great. Yeah. I'm a tentative in. Yeah. I, think, I think there's definitely there's pleasures to be had here. Yeah, it's great. Uh, what you got for us? Well, it's going to be a sentimental one. So just to... It's, it's a hundredth episode next week. And um, me and Drew have a number of texts that have marked our friendship. So actually... The first text that marked our friendship was a David Williamson play, Third World Blues. Do you remember yes. that? Yes. We, we um in year eight. This is this is such a thing, like such a, the kind of assignment we would have got at our school. That we had got this homework assignment: watch a play in the holidays. Yeah. <laughs> that was like just that was so the kind of assignments we got: watch a play. So our parents knew each other. And we went to see that play together. Yeah. So yeah. that was the first play. We saw. First film we saw together. What was it? I don't remember, Matt. Roseville. <laughs> Goodwill hunting, Goodwill hunting, Goodwill hunting. Wow, I'm feeling a little bit. <laughs> Goodwill hunting and first TV series we watched together in its entirety. Ah, uh, right, 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 yeah, right, right. Twin Peaks. Uh, so sure, sure, sure. when when the HSC ended, um, our schoolies was watching the entirety of Twin Peaks, which we got out on VHS. And I remember actually at my local video store, it was Video Easy 5 Doc, I actually had to sign a disclaimer saying that if I lost any of the VHS tapes, I would reimburse them. Like it was yeah. a really big deal. It was real rare. It was really Artifact. hard. It was a box set, but there were like 15 VHSs and actually they spelled out Welcome to Twin Peaks on the spine. And I remember mm. like the guy who worked there, this guy was a classic. I remember um, once I had to wait half an hour to get my video because he, the person in front of him, mentioned they liked David Lynch and this like bloke behind the counter he was like I finally figured out Lost Highway <laughs> he spent half an hour explaining Lost Highway wow. to this customer who couldn't like couldn't escape <laughs> I'd wait half an hour to get my feel like he, he was just like one of those great video store guys but I remember he, he was really reticent to let me borrow the VHS Twin Peaks VHSs it was like a real haggle to get them but then of course we, we watched them the rest was history I mean we would never have assumed there'd be a, a third season would we no. like it was just no. we just finished with How's Annie the final scene with Carl McLaughlin and we were traumatised. So yeah, yeah. I feel like for the 100th episode, we've got to do... It makes sense. Damn fine coffee. It makes sense. That's my favourite... I think it's my favourite... I mean, we are talking the other day, actually just before this, about favourite TV shows. I think if I had to list my top five, it's pretty conventional. It's The Wire, Sopranos, Breaking Bad, Seinfeld, but Twin Peaks is the top of the... What's, what's your all-time favourite TV show? Would it be Twin Peaks? I'll think about it between yeah. now and uh, the next time we broadcast them. Between Peaks would be top five. Oh, absolutely. Surely. absolutely. Surely. No, that's number one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's got to yeah. be number one, right? Number like, one. Is there any show like Twin Peaks? <laughs> it has to be. It has, it has to, to be. be. It has to be. Um, yeah. All right. So next time we're going to do Twin Peaks. It, it may just be talking less about the pilot than about our experience. In Twin <laughs> the experience is in, is indelible. Yeah. Is, is inextricably bound up with the, the watching. We'll mention the first year uni Twin Peaks screening we organised that no one came to. <laughs> There's a lot of Twin Peaks stuff. Then the triumphant the third triumphant, year return. Well, we did when, when we got a full packed house for Twin Peaks. <laughs> um, a lot of Twin Peaks stuff going on. So, yeah, that'll be next week. Damn fine, damn fine coffee. <laughs> yeah, I think it's I think it's symbolically appropriate. Symbolically appropriate. And hundred episodes is pretty good, I think too. I think we we've, we've done well for ourselves. Pretty pretty good. Okay, I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Parlor Club. <laughs>